Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I am the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm excited that our guest is Marie Desjardins. She is an Associate Dean for Engineering and Information Technology, as well as a Professor of Computer Science at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She got her undergrad degree from Harvard and a PhD in Computer Science from Berkeley. And she's been involved in the National Conference of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence for over 12 years. Welcome to the show, Mary. Hi, it's nice to be here. So tell me, when people ask you, like, what, I often open the show with what is artificial intelligence? Because interestingly, there's no consensus definition on it, and I get a different kind of view of it from everybody. So I'll start with that. What is artificial intelligence? Sure. I've always thought about artificial intelligence as just a very broad term referring to trying to get computers uh, to do things that we would consider intelligent if people did them. What's interesting about that definition is it's a moving target because we change our opinions over time about what's intelligent as computers get better at doing things. They no longer seem that intelligent to us. And what we use the word intelligent too, and I'm not going to like dwell on definitions, but what do you think intelligence is at its core? So it's, it's definitely hard to pin down, um, but I think of it as activities that human beings carry out that we don't know of uh, lower order animals doing other than uh, some of the higher primates who can do things that seem intelligent to us. So intelligence involves intentionality, which means uh, setting goals and making active plans to carry them out. And it involves uh, learning over time and being able to react to situations differently based on experiences and knowledge that we've gained over time. The third part that I would argue intelligence includes is communication. So the ability to communicate with other um, beings, other intelligent agents about your activities and goals. Well, that's really useful and specific. Let's look at some of those things in, in detail a little bit. You mentioned intentionality. Do you think that intentionality is driven by consciousness? I mean, can you have intentionality without consciousness? Yeah. And so Go ahead. Is, is consciousness therefore a requisite for intelligence? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I would decline to answer it mainly because I don't think we ever can really know what consciousness is. Um, we all have a sense of being conscious inside our own brains, at least I believe that. <laughs> um, but of course, I'm only able to say anything meaningful about my own sense of consciousness. And we just don't have any way to measure consciousness or even really define what it is. So there does seem to be this this idea of self-awareness that we see in various kinds of animals, uh, including humans. And that seems to be a precursor to what we call consciousness. 
Um, but I think it's awfully hard to define that term. And so I, I would be hesitant to put that as a prerequisite on intentionality. So, um, well, I, I think people agree what it is. And like in a, in a sense, I mean, consciousness is the experience of things. It's having a subjective experience of, of something. Isn't the debate more like, where does that come from? How does that arise? Where, why do we have it? But where in terms of a simple definition, we, we do know that, don't we? Well, I don't know. I mean, where does it come from? How does it arise? And do different people even have the same experience of consciousness as each other? Um, I think when you start to dig down into it, it's, we, we don't have any way to tell whether another being is conscious or self-aware. Well, ask them. Let's, let's, let's look at that for a minute because self-awareness is a little different. Are you familiar with um, um, the, the red spot mirror test that uh, Professor Gallup uh, does where they take a sleeping animal and you paint a little red spot on its forehead and then, right. you, you know, you wait until it walks by a mirror and if it stops and like rubs its own forehead, then it, sure. according to the theory, has a sense of self and therefore it is self-aware. Do you? And, and the only reason all of this matters is if you, if you, if you really want to build an intelligent machine, you have, to, you have to start with, well, what, what goes into that? So do you think that is a, a measure of self-awareness? And would passing the mirror test, would a computer need to pass the mirror test, as it were, to... See, that's, that's where I think we start to run into problems, right? Because it's an interesting experiment. And, and it, it maybe tells us something about, a, a, let's say, a type of self-awareness. Um, if, if an animal's blind, it can't pass that test. So passing the test, therefore, can't be a precursor to intelligence. Well, I guess the, the statement would be um, the, the cognitive ability that if your senses are, I mean, you could also say you can't pass the test when you're asleep, but that doesn't, I mean, yeah. the, I guess the, the question would be if you had the cognitive ability and, and a fully functional set of senses that most of your species have, are you able to look at something else and determine that, that I'm a me and that's a reflection of me and that actually is me, but I can touch my own forehead. And I mean, like, I'm, I'm thinking, sorry, I'm, I'm okay. being more responsive because I'm thinking about it. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that a test that's designed for animals that have evolved in the wild is not necessarily a meaningful test for intelligent agents that we've engineered because I could design a robot that can pass that test that nobody would think was self-aware in any interesting and meaningful sense. Right. In other words, I can game for any given test you design, I can game and redesign my system to pass that test. But the problem is that the test measures something that we think is true in the wild, but as soon as we say this is the test, we can build a thing that passes that test that doesn't do what we meant for the agent to be able to do to be self-aware. Right. And, and it should be pointed out that there are those who look at the mirror test and say, well, if you put a spot on an animal's hand, just because they kind of wipe their hand. Yeah. That, that it's really a better test of do they have the mental capability to understand what a mirror does and it has nothing to do with 
Right. With, it's uh, measuring exactly. It's uh, you know, it's measuring something well, about fear and so forth. So let's talk about another thing in your intelligence because uh, I'm fascinated by what you just kind of outlined, and you said that uh, some amount of communication, therefore some language, is necessary. Um, so do you think, at least for, and before we get to applying it to machines, do you think that language is a requisite in the animal kingdom for intelligence? Well, I don't think it has to be language in the sense of the English language or, or, or human natural language, but there's different ways to communicate. You can communicate through gestures. You can communicate through physical interaction. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be spoken language. Um, but I do think the ability to convey information to another being that can then receive the information that was conveyed is part of what we mean by intelligence. Languages for artificial systems could be very limited and constrained. Um, and, and so I don't think that we necessarily have to solve the natural language problem in order to develop what, what we would call intelligent systems. But I think when you talk about strong AI, which is you know, referring to sort of human level intelligence, at that point, I don't think you can really, I don't think you can demonstrate human level intelligence without being able to communicate in some kind of natural language. So just to be clear, do you, are, you, are you saying language indicates intelligence or language is required for intelligence? Language is required for intelligence. Okay. So uh, there's some, there are actually a number of examples in the plant kingdom where plants are able to communicate signals to other plants. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if the grass is being mowed, it puts out, uh, there's, there's a, uh, kind of a, a series of them. Um, so do you, would you say that qualifies, that if, if you're familiar with any of those examples, do those qualify as language in a, in a, in a meaningful sense, or is that just like, well, you can call it language if you know, you're trying to do like clever thought riddles, but it's not really a language. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say as with most interesting things, there's sort of a spectrum, but one of the characteristics of intelligent language, I think, is the ability to learn the language and to adapt the language to new situations. So, you know, ants communicate with each other by laying down pheromones, but ants can't develop new ways to communicate with each other if you put them into a new environment. They, they're hardwired, right? They're biologically hardwired to use communication. And so there, there's an interesting philosophical argument that uh, the species is intelligent or, or evolution is intelligent at some level. Um, I think those are interesting philosophical discussions. I don't know that they're particularly helpful in understanding intelligence in individual beings. Well, I definitely want to get to computers here in a minute and, and apply all of this as best we can. But by our best guess, humans acquired speech 100,000 years ago, roughly the same time we got fire. And the theory is that fire allowed us to cook food, which allowed us to break down the proteins in it and make it more digestible, and that that allowed us to increase our caloric assumption, uh, consumption, and we went all in on the brain, and so we right. used 20 all of that, and that gave us language. Would the thesis, would your statement that language is a requirement for intelligence 
reply, imply that 101,000 years ago, hmm. assuming that date, obviously, but we were not intelligent. I, I would guess that human beings were communicating with each other 101,000 years ago and probably 200,000 years ago. You know, and, and again, I think, I think intelligence is a spectrum. I think chimpanzees are intelligent and dolphins are intelligent at some level. Uh, I don't know about pigs and dogs. I don't, I don't have strong... Interestingly, they don't. Uh, <laughs> of all things, dogs don't um, pass the, uh, the, the, the little red paint mirror the test. Paint they are, interestingly, the only animal, the only animal on the whole face of the earth and... and by all means, any listener out there who, who knows otherwise, please email me, that if you point at an object, we'll look at the object. That really? they, yeah, that even uh, chimpanzees don't do that. And so it's thought that, we, that they co-evolved with us as we domesticated them. That was something we selected for, not overtly, but passively, by, because that's useful. It's like, go get that thing, right? And, right. You, and then the dog looks over there at it. And uh, right. it's funny, there's an old Far Side cartoon, you know, it's... it's you can't get those things out of your head where the scientists, the dolphins are in the tank and they're writing down all the dolphins' noises and <laughs> things like, say hable espanol and sprechen die Deutsch. And they're like, yeah, we can't make any sense of it. <laughs> um, so let's get back to um, language because I'm really fascinated by this and particularly the cognitive aspects of it. So what do you think is meaningful, if anything, about the Turing test, which of course, you know, but for the benefit of our listeners, is uh, Alan Turing put this out that if you can't tell, if you're on a computer terminal and you're chatting with somebody typing and you can't tell if it's a person or a, a machine, then, then you have to say that machine is intelligent. Right. And of course, Alan Turing's original version of that test was a little bit uh, different and more gendered. Uh, if you're familiar. Well, he based it on the gendered test. Right. No, you're yeah. entirely right. Yes. Right. Um, you know, and there's, there's a lot of objections to the Turing test. In fact, when I teach the introductory AI class at UMBC, we, I have the students read um, some of Alan Turing's work and then John Searle's arguments against Chinese room, right. the Turing test, the Chinese room and so forth. And I have them talk about all of that. And again, I think these are sort of interesting philosophical discussions that luckily we don't actually need to resolve in order to keep making progress towards intelligence, because I don't think this is one that'll ever be resolved. Um, you know, I think it, here's something I think is really interesting. When that test was proposed and in the early years of AI, the way it was envisioned was based on the communication of the time. Today's Turing tests are based on in, a, in an environment in which we communicate very differently online than we do in person or than Alan Turing ever imagined we would. And so the, the kind of chat bots that do well at these Turing tests um, re really probably wouldn't have looked intelligent to an AI researcher in the 1960s, but I don't think that most um, social media posts would have looked very intelligent either. <laughs> and so, so we, we kind of adapted ourselves to this sort of cryptic, um, darting, illogical, kind of jumping around in different topics, way of conversing with each other online, where lapses in rationality and continuity are forgiven really easily. 
And when I see some of the transcripts of modern Turing tests, I think, well, this kind of reminds me a little bit of Perry. I don't know if you're familiar with Eliza and Perry, but Eliza... Uh, Weizenbaum's 1960s um, Q&A, his, his kind of psych psychologist helper, right? Right. So Eliza was a pattern, pattern recognition-based kind of online psychologist that would use this kind of, um, I guess it's Freudian way of um, interrogating a patient to, to ask you about your feelings and so forth. And when this was created, people were very taken in by it because, you know, they would spill out their deepest, darkest secrets to this, what turned out to be essentially one of the earliest chatbots. Um, there was a version of that that was created later, uh, and I can't remember the, um, the researcher who created it, but was studying uh, paranoid schizophrenia and, and the speech patterns of paranoid schizophrenics, and that, that version of Eliza was called Perry. And if you read any transcripts by Perry, it's very disjointed and kind of kind of can get away with not having a deep semantic model because whenever it doesn't it doesn't really understand anything and if it can't match anything it just changes the topic uh, and that's what the modern turing tests look like to me mostly so you know i kind of feel like we need to re if we were going to really use the turing test as some measure of intelligence i think maybe we need to put some rules on um kind of critical thinking and and uh, rationality that we're that we're you know what what is it that we're chatting about and what is the nature of this communication uh, with the agent in the in the in the black box because right now it's sort of it's just degenerated into again this kind of gaming the system well let's just see if we can trick a human into thinking that we're a person but we we get to take advantage of the fact that online communication is is this kind of uh, dance that that we play that's not necessarily logical and rational and rule following. So I want to come back to that um, because I, I want to go down that path with you. But beforehand, it should be pointed out. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you know this a lot better than I do. But the people who interacted with Eliza all knew it was a computer and that there was quote nobody at home. And that, in the end, is what freaked Weizenbaum out and had him turn on artificial intelligence because. He, he, you know, when he said, I think he said something to the effect of when the computer says, I understand, it's a lie. It's a lie because there is no I and there's nothing to understand. So, am I, was it the same case with Perry that uh, they knew full and well they were talking to a machine, but they still engaged with it as if it was uh, a I mean, Well, that was, being, that was being used for, to try to model the behavior of a paranoid schizophrenic. And so, I, my understanding is that they ran some experiments where they had psychologists um, in a in a in a blind setting, interact with an actual paranoid schizophrenic or this model, and sort of do a Turing test to try to determine whether this was a, a kind of a convincing model of paranoid schizophrenic um, interaction style. So I, I think I it was a scientific experiment that was being run. So you used the phrase when you were talking about Perry just now, it doesn't understand anything. Mm. Uh, that's obviously Searle's whole uh, question with the Chinese room, that the room, the, the, the person, the, the, the non-Chinese speaker who can use these books to answer questions in Chinese right. doesn't understand anything. Do you think even today a computer understands anything and mm -hmm. will a computer ever understand anything? 
That's an interesting question. So when, when we talk about this in my class with my students, I use the analogy of learning a new language. And I don't know if you speak any foreign languages to any degree of fluency. I'm still working on English. <laughs> right. So, you know, I speak a little bit of French and a little bit of German and a little bit of Italian. And I'm, so I'm very conscious of the language learning process. And when I would, when I was first learning Italian, anything I said in Italian was laboriously translated in my mind by essentially looking up rules. You know, I want to say, I, well, I don't even, I don't remember any Italian, so I can't, I can't use Italian as an example anymore. But, right. you know, I want to say I am, I am 20 years old in French. And so in order to do that, I don't say, j'ai 20 ans. I say, how do I say I am 20 years old? Oh, I remember they don't say I am 20 years old. They say I have 20 years. Okay, I have is je a 20 is van. And I'm, I'm, I'm doing this kind of pattern-based lookup in my mind. Um, but, but doing that inside my head, I can communicate a little bit in French. So do I understand French? Well, the, the, the answer to that question would be, no, but what you understand is that process you just talked about. Okay, I need to deconstruct the sentence. I need to figure out what the subject is. I need to line that up with the verb. And so, yes, you, you, under, you, you have a higher order understanding that allows you to do that. You understand what you're doing unquestionably. Right. And so the question is, at that meta, 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 meta level, will a computer ever understand what it's doing? And I think, I think this actually kind of gets back to the, conscious, to the question of consciousness, right? Does understanding, is, is understanding in the sense that, that, you know, Searle wants it to be, or Weizenbaum wanted it to be, is it tied up in our self-awareness of the processes that we're carrying out to reason about things in the world? So I only have one more Turing test question to ask, then I would love to change the subject to uh, the state of the art today, and then I would love to talk about um, what, when you think we're gonna have certain advances, and then um, maybe we can talk about the impact of all this technology on jobs. So just with that looking forward, one last question, which is, you know, when you were talking about maybe redoing, rethinking the Turing test, that it, that we would have a different standard maybe today than, than Turing did. What I find, and by the way, the contests that they have where they really are trying to pass it, they are highly restricted and, and constrained, I think. Is that the case? I, I, I'm not that familiar with them, although I did read The Most Human Human, which is a very interesting book if you are looking for some light summer reading. All right. Uh, are you familiar with the book? It's, it's by um, somebody who, who served as a human in... Um, oh, no, I, I don't know that. Leibniz Prize Turing Test, yeah, and sort of uh, his experience of what it's like to be... Um, the human. human. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah. the interesting thing was that, uh, and anybody who's heard the show before will know I use this example. I always start everyone with the same question. I always ask the same question to every system. And... Um, and, and nobody ever gets it right, even close. And because of that, I know with in three seconds that I'm not talking to a human. And the question is, what's larger, the sun or a nickel? And no matter what, no matter how, I think your phrase was schizophrenic or 
disjointed <laughs> or what have you that the person is, they answer the sun or right. duh or hmm. Uh, but no machine can. So two questions. Why do you think, do you, is that question indicative of the state of the art that we really are like in stone knives and bear skins with natural language? And second, um, do you think that we're going to make strides forward that will, that maybe someday you'll have to wonder if I'm uh, actually not a sophisticated artificial intelligence chatting with you <laughs> or not. So, um, so actually, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm surprised to hear you say that computers can't answer that question. Cause I would think, you know, Watson or a system like that, that has a big, uh, kind of backend knowledge base that it's drawing on would pretty easily be able to find, you know, I can Google how big is the sun and how big is a nickel and, and, you know, apply a pretty simple rule. Well, you're right. In all fairness, uh, I, there's not a kind of a global chat bot of Watson that, that I have found. I mean, the, the trick yeah. is nickel is both a metal and a coin, and the right. sign is a homophone that could be a person's sign. Person's but sign. a person, a human makes that connection. These are both round, and so they kind of look alike and, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. So when, when I say it, I mean you go to the, um, you know, you go to Cleverbot, or you go mm -hmm. to... The, the different chatbots that are entered in uh, the, the touring competitions and, and whatnot. I mean, you ask Google, you type that into Google, you don't get the answer. So you're yeah. right, you're right, there are probably systems that can nail it, I just never bump into yeah, them. Yeah, and, and you know, there's probably contexts that you could provide in which the answer to that question would be the nickel, right? So like, I've got a picture I've got a drawing that we've just been talking about and it's got the sun in it and it has a nickel in it and the nickel's really big in the picture and the sun is really small because it's far away. And I say, which is bigger? This, you know, and you might, there might actually be a context in which the obvious answer isn't actually the right answer. And I think that kind of trickiness is what makes um, people, you know, that's, that's the, the signal of intelligence that we can kind of, contextualize our reasoning. I, I actually, I think the, quest, the question as, as a basic question is, it's such a factual question that that's the kind of thing that I think computers are actually really good at. Right, I think the harder you know, one. But like, what do you okay. love more, um, you know, a rose or a daisy? That's, man, that's a harder question. Right. You know, or what's your mother's favorite flower? Now, there's a tricky question. Right, right. I mean, I think I have a, I have a, a book coming out on, the, on this topic at the end of the year, and I try to think up the hardest question, like what's the last one? And I, I'm sure listeners will have better ideas than I am, but the one I came up with was um, Dr. Smith is eating at her favorite restaurant when she receives a phone call. Um, she rushes out, neglecting to pay her bill. Is management likely to prosecute? Mm. And so we need to know she's probably a medical doctor. She probably got an emergency call. It's her favorite restaurant, so she's probably known yeah, there. Probably she known dashes her. out. Yeah. Um, are they really going to go to all the effort to prosecute, not just get her to pay next time she's in? Yeah. And 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 whatnot. And so um, that is the kind of thing that has so many layers of of experience that it would be hard for a machine to do. 
Yeah, but I, but I would argue that I think eventually we, w- we will have intelligent agents that are embedded in the world and interact with people and build up knowledge bases of that kind of common sense knowledge and could answer that question. Or, or you know, a similar type of question that was posed based on um, experience in the world and knowledge of, of you know, interpersonal interactions. To, to me, that's, that's kind of the exciting future of AI, um, being able to, you know, look up facts really fast. Like, like Watson was exciting in winning Jeopardy, but let's face it, looking up a lot of facts and being able to click on a buzzer really fast are not really um, the things that are the most exciting about the idea of an intelligent, you know, human, human-like agent. They're you awfully people, don't get me wrong. You know, and I think when we talk about like commercial potential and replacing jobs, which, which you know, you mentioned, um, I think those kinds of abilities to, to retrieve information really quickly in a flexible way, that is something that can really lead to systems that are incredibly useful for human beings. Whether they are strong AI or not, doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, you know, the philosophical stuff is fun to talk about, but there's this other kind of practical, what are we really going to build and what are we going to do with it? Um, right. You know, so, it doesn't require answering those questions. Fair enough. Um, and in closing on all of that other part, I, I heard Ken Jennings speak at South by Southwest uh, about it. And and I, I will preface this by saying he's incredibly gracious. He he completely, you know, he, he doesn't say, well, it was, ri-, you know, he's incredibly yeah gracious about the whole thing. He did describe though that the buzzer situation was different that because that's the one hot part that's really hard to map is the because the buzzer's the trick on Jeopardy, not the answers and that's and he, right. And I mean and that was all changed up a bit. Ken is clearly the best human at the buzzer. Yeah. I mean Ken is super smart and knows a ton of stuff. Don't get me wrong. I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't win on Jeopardy. But I think that it's it's that the buzzer is, is the difference. And so I think it will be really interesting to have a sort of Jeopardy contest in which the buzzer doesn't matter, right? So you just buzz in and if and there's some reasonable window in which to buzz in and then it's random who gets to answer the question or maybe everybody gets to answer the question independently. Right, it's like right. a Jeopardy-like thing where that timed um, buzzing in isn't part of it. It's really the knowledge that's the key. Uh, I, I suspect Watson would still do pretty well and Ken would still do pretty well, but I'm not sure who would win in that case. Mm. It would depend a lot on the questions, I think. So you gave us a great segue just a minute ago, which said, is all of this talk about consciousness and awareness and self and Turing test and all of that, does it matter? And mm. it sounded like you were saying whether it does or it doesn't, there's plenty of advanced, exciting things that are coming down the pipe. Yeah. And, and so let's talk about that. I would love to hear your thoughts on, A, the state of the art. And um, it, the AI's passed a bunch of milestones in the popular, you know, like you said, there was chess, then Jeopardy, then uh, AlphaGo, and then recently poker. Um, yeah. what, what, are, what are some things you think, without going to AGI, which we'll get to in a minute, what are some things we should look for to come up? So what's the state of the art? And what are some things you think we're going to see in a year, two years, three years, you know, that will dominate the headlines? I mean, I think the most obvious thing is self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles. 
right, which we already have um, out there on the roads doing a great deal. I, I drive a Volvo that can do lane following and, you know, can pretty much drive itself in many conditions. And that is uh, really cool and really exciting. And is it intelligence? Well, no, I mean, not by the definitions we've just been talking about, but the technology to be able to do all of that very much what came out of, you know, AI research and research directions. But I guess there won't be a watershed event with that in the way that one day we woke up and Lisa Dole had lost. Um, I mean, won't it be that like some, you know, in three years, the number one pop star, the number one pop song, number one Justin Bieber song will have been written by an AI or something like that, that it's like, wow, something just happened. Yeah, I guess, I guess I think it's a little bit more of a, like cell phones, right? I mean, you know, what was the, what was the moment for cell phones? I'm not sure there was one single Fair enough. Um, That's it's right. more of like a tipping point, and you can look back at it and say, oh, there's this inflection point, right? there." And, and I don't know what it was for cell phones, but there, I expect there was an inflection point when either cell phone technology became cheap enough or cell, or cell tower coverage became prevalent enough that it made sense for people to have cell phones and start using them. And when that happened, it did happen very fast. Uh, and I think it'll be the same with self-driving cars. You know, it was, it was very fast that uh, cars started coming out with adaptive cruise control, right? I mean, we always had, we've had cruise control for a long time where your car just, you know, keeps going at the same speed forever. But adaptive cruise control, where your car detects when there's something in front of it and slows down or speeds up based on the conditions of the road, um, that happened really fast. It just came out and now lots of cars have that and people are kind of used to it. GPS technology, right? I have, in fact, I was just driving along the other day and I'm like, oh yeah, I've got a map in my car all the time. And anytime I want to, I can say, hey, I'd like to go to this place and it will show me how to get to that place. Um, you know, we didn't have that. And then within a pretty short span of time, we had that and that's an AI derivative also. Right. No, I think that's, those are all incredibly good points. I, I would say with cell phones, I can remember in the mid-90s, the Razor coming out, which was smaller, and it was like, wow, because it didn't like, you didn't know you had it in your pocket. And then, of course, the iPhone was kind of a watershed thing. It, right, the smartphone. Right. But, but you're right. It's, 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 a gra it's a form of gradualism punctuated by by um, a series of kind of step functions up. So, that's right. So, Self-driving car technology in particular is like that because it's really a, it's a big ask to expect people to trust self-driving cars on the road. And so there's this process by which that will happen and is already happening where individual bits of autonomous technology are being incorporated into human-driven cars and meanwhile, there's a lot of experimentation with self-driven cars under relatively controlled conditions. And at some point, there will be a tipping point and you will buy a car and I will be sitting in my car and it will take me to New York and I won't have to be in control. Of course, one impediment to that is that whole thing where 
a vast majority of the people believe the statistical impossibility that they are above average drivers. <laughs> That's right. I, and, I, on the other hand, believe I'm a below average driver. So I'm going to be like the first person, <laughs> like I'm a menace on the road. You want me off as soon as you can. And, and it probably is good enough uh, for that. Do yeah. you, I know prognostication is hard and, and I guess cars are different because I can't get a free self-driving car with a two-year contract at thirty nine ninety five a month, right? So it's a big capital like shift. But do you have a, a, a sense, because I'm, I'm sure you're up on, on all of this. Do you have a sense when you think the first fully autonomous car will happen? And then the most interesting thing, when it will be illegal not to drive not a fully autonomous car? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think that some people at least, I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure how it will roll out. It may be that it's in particular locations or particular regions first, but I think that, you know, ordinary people being able to drive a self-driving car, I, I would say within 10 years. I noticed you slipped that, I don't know when it's going to roll out pun in there. That <laughs> Pun not in So, so See, tell if, me. If my, if my AI could recognize that as a pun. Humor is another thing that, that uh, intelligent agents are not very good at. And I think that'll be a long time coming. Right. So you have just, you have just confirmed I'm a human. Um, <laughs> so next question, what do you think? You've mentioned uh, strong AI or also called an artificial general intelligence. That is an intelligence as smart as a human. So back to your earlier question of does it matter we're going to be able to do things like self-driving cars, all this really cool stuff without answering these philosophical questions. But my, I think the big question is, can we make an AGI? Because yeah. if you look at what humans are good at doing, we're good at transfer learning where we take something we learn in one domain and kind of map it to another one effortlessly. Um, we, we're really good at taking one data point. You can train a human on one data point. You can show a human one data point of something and then a hundred photos and no matter how you change the lighting or the angle a person would be up there 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 and there so do you think that an agi is the sum total of a series of weak ais bolted together or is there some i'm going to use a loaded word magic obviously i don't mean magic is there some hitherto unknown magic that we're going to need to discover or invent i, I think hitherto unknown magic um you know, using the word magic cautiously. I, I, you know, I think there's, there are individual technologies that are really exciting and are letting us do a lot of things. So right now, deep learning is the big buzzword and it's, it's you know, it's, it's kind of cool. We've taken old neural net technology and we've, we've updated it with, you know, qualitatively different ways of thinking about um, neural, essentially neural network learning that we couldn't really think about before because we didn't have the hardware to be able to do it right at the scale or with the kind of complexity that deep learning networks exist now. So deep learning is exciting, but deep learning I think is just fundamentally not suited to do this uh, single point generalization that you're talking about, which I, which I think, you know, big data is the buzzword, but I'm personally, I've always been more interested in tiny data, right? Or, or maybe it's big service, in, big data in the service of tiny data. So I, I, 
I experience lots and lots and lots of things. And by having all of that um, kind of background knowledge at my disposal, I can do one shot learning because I can take that single instance and interpret it and understand what is relevant about that one single instance that I need to use to generalize to the next thing. And so I don't think, you know, one shot learning works because we have vast experience, but that doesn't mean that throwing vast experience at that one thing is by itself going to let us generalize from that single thing. I think we still really haven't developed the sort of cognitive reasoning frameworks that will let us take the power of deep learning and big data and apply it in these new contexts in sort of creative ways using different levels of reasoning and abstraction. But I think that's where we're headed. And I think a lot of people are thinking about that. Um, and so, you know, so I'm very hopeful that the broad AI community in its luscious, you know, many flowers blooming way of exploring different approaches is, is developing a lot of ideas that eventually are going to come together into a big, into a, you know, an intelligent reasoning framework that will let us take all of the different kinds of um, technologies that we've built for special purpose algorithms and put them together, not just bolted together, but really integrated into a more coherent, broad framework for AGI. So do you think, you know, if you look at the human genome, it's uh, in computer terms, it's 720 meg, give or take, but a, a vast amount of that is useless. And then a vast amount of that we share with, you know, banana trees. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the part that's uniquely human, which, you know, gives us our unique intelligence, it may be four meg or eight meg. It's a really small number. And yet in that, in that little program uh, are the instructions to make something that becomes a, an AGI. So do you, do, do you take that to mean that there's a, there's a, a secret, a trick? And again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using words that, I mean them metaphorically. Uh, there's something very simple we're missing. Something you could write in a few lines of code, maybe maybe um, a short program that right. could make something that's an AGI. Or is that is that a bad? Am, am I am I kind of? Yeah, I don't know. You know, we had a few hundred million years to evolve that. So, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, what the the length of something doesn't necessarily mean that it's simple. And I think it's, you know, I, I don't know enough about genomics um, to talk really intelligently about this, but I do think that, you know, four to eight meg that's uniquely human it interacts with everything else, with, with the rest of the genome, possibly with the parts that we think don't do anything because there were parts of the genome that we thought didn't do anything that it turns out some of it does do something. It's the dark matter of the genome just because we doesn't, we don't know what it's doing. I don't know that that means that it's not doing anything. Well, that's a really interesting point. The four to eight meg may be highly compressed to use the right. computer metaphor and it may be decompressing to something that's using all the rest, but let's even say it takes 720 meg, you know, you're still talking about, 
something that will fit on a CD and an old, like that we would even use one, but an right. old CD-ROM. Right. It's something smaller than most, you know, operating systems today. Is it, is it, and, and I 100% hear what you say, which is nature's had a hundred million years to, to compress that, you know, to make that really tight code. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess the larger question I'm trying to ask is, do you think that an AGI may the the hope in ai had always been that just like in the physical universe there's just a few few laws that mm. explain everything or is it that it's like no we're incredibly complicated and it's going to be this immense system that that becomes a general intelligence and it's going to be of 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 complexity we don't even can't wrap our heads around yet um gosh i i I don't know. I, I feel like I just can't prognosticate that. I think, I think the ultimate, you know, when we, if and when we have an AGI that we really think is intelligent, it probably will have an awful lot of components. The, the core that drives all of it may be, relatively speaking, fairly simple. Um, but I think there will be, I think, if you think about how human intelligence works, there's all these, there's, we have lots and lots of modules, right? But there's this sort of core um, mechanism by which the brain processes information that plays out in a lot of different ways in different parts of the brain. You know, we have, we have the motor cortex and we have the language cortex and they're all, they're specialized. You know, we have these specialized regions and specialized abilities, um, but they all use kind of a common um, substrate or mechanism. And so I, I, when I think of the ultimate AI, I think of there being some sort of architecture that binds together a lot of different um, components that are doing different things. And it's that it's that architecture and that glue that I think we haven't really figured out how to think about that yet. There are some, you know, there are cognitive architectures. There are people who work on designing cognitive architectures. Uh, and I think those are the precursors of what will ultimately become the architecture, architecture for intelligence. But I'm not sure we're really working on that hard enough or that we've made enough progress on that part of it. And it may be that the way that we get, you know, artificial intelligence ultimately is by building a really, really, really big deep learning, you know, neural network, um, which I would find maybe a little bit disappointing because I feel like if that's how we get there, we're not really going to know what's going on inside of it. And part of what brought me into the field of AI was really an interest in cognitive psychology and trying to understand how the human brain works. So, you know, maybe we can create another human-like intelligence by just kind of replicating the human brain. Um, But I I personally, just from my own research perspective, I wouldn't find that especially satisfying because, um, you know, it's really hard to understand what's going on in the human brain. And it's hard to understand what's going on even in in any single deep learning network that that can do, you know, visual processing or, or anything like that. So, and I also think that in order for us to really adopt these intelligent systems and, and embrace them and trust them and be willing to use them, we have to find ways for them to be more explainable and more understandable um, to human beings. And so we, even, if we, even if we go about human 
replicating human intelligence in that way. I still think we need to be thinking about um, understandability and, and how, how it really works and how we extract meaning. That's really fascinating. So you're saying if we made this big system that was huge and studied data, it's kind of just brute force. We, we don't have anything elegant about that. That It doesn't tell us anything about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think, so my last theoretical question, and I'd love to talk about jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you said at the very beginning that consciousness may be beyond our grasp, that somehow we're too close to it, or it's too, uh, maybe something we can't uh, agree on, we can't measure, we can't tell in others and all of that. Is it possible that the same is true of a general intelligence, that in the end, you know, this hope of yours that you said brought you into the field, that it's going to give us deep insights into ourselves actually um, isn't possible? Um, well, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I, I think that we've already gained a lot of insight into ourselves. Um, and, and, you know, we're, because we're humans, we're curious. And so if we, if we build intelligent agents without fully understanding how they work or what they do, then uh, maybe we'll work side by side with them to, uh, to understand each other. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to stop asking those questions, whether we get to some level of intelligent agents before then or after then. You know, questions about the universe are always going to be with us. So, um, on to the question that, you know, most people yes. in their day-to-day -day life, they worry about, they don't worry as much about uh, killer robots as they do about <laughs> job-killing robots. Right. Uh, what do you think will be the effect so you, you know the setup, you know both sides of this. Is uh, artificial intelligence something brand new that replaces people and it's going to get this critical velocity where it can learn things faster than us and eventually just surpass us in all fields? Or is it like other disruptive technologies, arguably equally disruptive, such as the mechanization of industry, the uh, harnessing of steam power, of electricity, that came and went and never, ever budged unemployment even one iota because people learned almost instantly how to use these new techn technologies to increase their own productivity. Which of those two or a third choice do you uh, think is most likely? Well, I don't, you know, I, I'm not a believer in the singularity. You know, I, I don't, I don't see that happening that these intelligent agents are going to kind of surpass us and make us completely superfluous or let us upload our brains into cyberspace or turn us into the matrix could happen i you know i'm i don't rule it out but that's not that's not what i think is most likely uh what i what i really think is that this is like other technologies you know it's like the invention of the car or the television or the assembly line it it, it does if we use it correctly it enhances human productivity and it lets us create value um, at less human cost. The question is not a scientific question or a technological question. The question is really a political question of how are we as a society going to decide to use that extra productivity? And unfortunately, in the past, um, we've often allowed that extra productivity 
to be channeled into the hands of a very few people so that we just increase wealth disparity and the people you know at the bottom of the economic pile have their jobs taken away so they're they're out of work but but more importantly the benefit that's being created by these new technologies isn't isn't benefiting them and i think that we can choose to think differently about how we distribute the value that we get out of these new technologies. The other thing is I think that as you automate various kinds of activities, um, the economy transforms itself. And we don't know exactly how that is going to happen and it would have been hard to predict before any historical technological disruption, right? What you invent cars, well, what happens to all the people who took care of the horses before? Something happened to them, right? That's a big industry that's that's gone. When we automate truck driving, this is going to be extremely disruptive because truck driver is one of the most common jobs in most of our country, at least. And so what happens to the people who were truck drivers, it turns out that you're automating some parts of that job, but not all of it, because a truck driver doesn't just sit at the wheel of a car and drive it down the road. The truck driver also um, loads and offloads and interacts with people at either end. So maybe the truck driver job becomes more of a sales job, or maybe it becomes, you know, there's fewer of them but they're, they're doing different things, or maybe it's supplanted by different kinds of service roles. You know, I think we're becoming more and more of a service economy, and that's partly because of automation. So I, I think, you know, we always need more productivity. There's always things that human society wants, and if we get some of those things with less human effort, um, that should let us create more other things. You know, I, I think we could use this productivity and support more art. That, that would be an amazing, you know, transformational 21st century kind of thing to do. I just don't know. I don't know. I look at, I look at our current politics and our current society, and I'm not sure that, that's, that enough people are thinking that way, that we can, we can think about how to use these wonderful technologies to benefit everybody. Um, I'm not sure that's where we're headed right now, but you know, life well, is well. Let's let's look at that. So there's some. I mean, there's a wide range of options. So uh, and and everybody's going to be familiar with them all. On the one hand, you you could say, um, you know, Facebook and Google made twelve billionaires between them. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we just take their money and give it to other people? Mm-hmm all the way to the other extreme that says, look, all those truck drivers are their, their corollaries in the past. Um, they, uh, nobody in a top-down, heavy-handed way reassigned them to different jobs. What happened is the market did a really good job of allocating technology, creating jobs, and recruiting them. So those would be two incredibly extreme positions. Um, and, and then there's this whole road in between where you would say, well, we need more education. We need to to help it make it easier for people to become uh, productive again, whose jobs, like where on that spectrum, um, 
if you don't want to, you know, necessarily go into where you land, uh, where in where 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 do you land? Where do you think? Like, what what specifically meet what you put on those bones? Look, I you know I think um, taxes are not an inherently bad thing. Taxes are how we run our society, and our society is what protects people and enables people to invent things like Google. You know, if we, if we, if we didn't have taxes and we didn't have any government services, these, it would be extremely difficult for human society to invent things like Google because to invent things like that requires uh, collaboration. It requires infrastructure. It requires um, the support of people around you to make that happen. You couldn't have Google if you didn't have the internet and the internet exists because the government invested in the internet and the government could invest in the internet because we paid taxes to the government to create collective um, infrastructure. So I, I think you know, there's always gonna be a tension between how, how high should taxes be and how much should you tax the wealthy, how, how regressive, how progressive um, estate taxes, you know, should you be able to sort of build up a dynasty and pass along all of your wealth to your children? You know, I, I have opinions about some of that, but some of it, there's no right answer. It changes over time. But I do think that we, the reason that we come together as human beings to create governments and create societies is because we want to have some ability to have a protected place where we can pursue our individual goals, right? Like I want to be able to drive to and from my job on roads that are good and, you know, have this interview with you through an internet connection that's maintained and not have marauding hordes, you know, steal my car while I'm in here. You know, we want safety and security and shared infrastructure. And and I think that this the technology that we're creating should let us do a better job at having that shared infrastructure and sort of basic ability for people to live happy and productive lives. Yeah. Right, and I get. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. So, so, um, so, you know, I don't think just kind of taking money from rich people and giving it to poor people is the right way to do that. But I do think investing in a better society makes a lot of sense. We have horribly decaying infrastructure in much of the country. So, doesn't it make sense to take some of the the capital that's created by technology advances and use it to improve the infrastructure in the country and improve healthcare for people. Right. And of course the, the, the countervailing factor is do all of the above without uh, diminishing people's incentives to, you know, work hard and found these that's companies right. that, that created. And that's the historical right. tension. Well, I would like to close with one question for you, which is the net of all of this, the net of, you know, how you think we're doing politically, how you think we're, um, well, all of this, everything we've just had. Are, are you optimistic about the future or pessimistic or how would you answer that? No, 
I'm incredibly optimistic. I mean, you know, I'm pessimistic about individual things on individual days, but I think collectively um, we have made incredible strides in, in technology and making people's quality of life better. And I think we could do a better job. I think we could, you know, there's, there's places where people don't have the education or don't have the infrastructure or don't have access to jobs or technology. I think we have real issues with diversity in technology, both in creating technology and in benefiting from technology. I'm very, very concerned about the, con the continuing underrepresentation of women and minority groups in computing and technology. Uh, and the reason for that is partly because I think it's it's just socially unjust to not have everybody equally benefiting from good jobs, from you know the benefits of technology, but it's also because the technology solutions that we create are influenced by the people who are creating them. And when when we have a very limited subset of of the population, creating technology, there's a lot of evidence that shows that the technology is not as robust and doesn't serve as broad a population of users as technology that's created by diverse teams of engineers. So I'd love to see more women coming into computer science. I'd love to see more African-American and Hispanics coming into computer science. Um, that's something I work on a lot. It's something I think matters a lot to our future. But, you know, I think we're doing the right things in those areas and people care about these things and we're pushing forward and there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in the AI world right now. And it's a great time to be, you know, an AI scientist because it, you know, people talk about AI. Like I walk down the street or I sit at Panera and I hear people talking about the latest AI solution for this thing. And, and it's, you know, it's become kind of, a common uh, term. It's sometimes, I think, a little overused because uh, we sort of use it for for anything that seems kind of cool. But but that's okay. I, you know, I think we can we can use AI for anything that seems pretty cool, and I don't think that hurts anything. All right. Well, that's a great uh, great place to end it. I want to thank you so much for uh, covering this, this incredibly wide range of topics. Uh, this was a, a, sure. a great fun and and uh, very informative. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device. <laughs>